This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. The human body was built to move, to search for food, to escape from animals. And later, civilization emerged with the role of running evolving too. When the Persian army landed at Marathon, the ancient Greeks sent their best runner from Athens to Sparta to warn of the invasion. Well, today, battery-powered scooters and bikes get us to our destination, though we still walk, run and ride off our own steam, not for food or transport or even exercise, but the experience of the journey itself. And today, in the final, in our three-part series on daily rituals, we ask, where are we really going when we walk, run and ride? Is it about finding a a post-pain pleasure in endurance or something more? Maybe self-awareness, meaning, even wisdom, perhaps? Well, Lachlan Brown chases the answer to that, running around the inland city of Wagga Wagga in the Riverina of New South Wales. That's where he works as a poet and lecturer in English at Charles Sturt University. Lachlan, welcome to God Forbid. Thanks for having me, James. It's great to be here. And also with us is Susan Marshall, who last year competed in the world's longest certified foot race, the first woman to cross the line she was in the self-transcendence 3,100-mile race, it's called, in Queens, New York. She ran nearly 100 kilometres a day every day for 51 days. In our Canberra studio, Susan Marshall, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you for having me. Well, congratulations. Queens is not that big in New York. And in fact, your racetrack was a single block. Yes, that's right. And you ran around the block more than 6,000 times. Mm-hmm. Yep. What on earth uh, inspired you to do that? Did you forget the milk? <laughs> well, I used it as a vehicle to explore myself and as a medium of my own self-transcendence. So I learned about this race initially when I came to, along to some meditation classes with the Sri Chinmay Centre. And um, Sri Chinmay really felt that running would parallel our journey of meditation. Sometimes the inner journey is intangible and expressible. And as beginners to the subject, it helps us sometimes to have goals outwardly, which allow us to have more of a grasp on how we're achieving things, how we're developing ourselves and where we stand in our own inner journey. And I felt from this race a sense of something infinite and it gave me a real feeling of joy and purpose. And, you know, over a very, very long time, I trained for this race. I found that it was something that was achievable to me. And although I admit I entered the race and I came to the start line with a huge amount of trepidation and fear, um, which really, you know, also persisted throughout the race. And yeah, and I did it. It was really, for me, it was a way of learning more about myself and developing myself, not just through the running, but as needing something, needing to be a better person, um, needing to keep looking around for how to improve myself, how to improve my running, and finding a way to do this as a real goal and a project for my life. And a part of this, you, you touched on it, it was Sri Chin Moy, the founder of the race and a, something of a spiritual teacher for you. Yes. Tell me about him. So he came to New York in 1964 with the idea of um, sharing the gifts of meditation to people in the West. Um, He came from India and he'd lived in an ashram in South India. 
but he felt that these two elements of the East and the West would ultimately be combined for not just the discovery of the inner reality, but also for its expression. So in India, there's you know a great deal of uh, spirituality, contemplative nature, but in the West, there's dynamism and expression. And for the soul to not only be discovered, but also to be expressed and revealed here on this earth, which he explained as being the purpose of the creation, you know, not unintentional, but that this was where many, many things would grow and flourish, that many divine seeds were in the world, many dreams, many hopes, you know, that we all have, you know, not just idle dreams, they're real realities that will bear fruit someday. So he really encouraged us not just to focus on our inner life, but also to lead very active lives and to use our meditation to help us to express that peace and to make the world a better place, to, to become better people, to serve, to offer something to the world. So the running is meditation? Yes, in a sense, it is meditation. You can use it as that and you can also use it as uh you know, something to just really help you along in your own journey. I mean, I I think people who run, they, they find that there is something that makes them feel um, at peace. Well, let's find out from Lachlan Brown if he has a similar experience, but in a different location, not running 6,000 laps of the same block in Queens, New York, but running around Wagga Wagga on the banks of the Murrumbidgee River. Yes, I'm not a runner in the same way as Susan is a runner. Um, I guess I'm more of a trundler and the idea of running 6,000 blocks is just unfathomable. But it does speak to something, I think, about this notion of the infinite, that, that one could just keep running. But <laughs> well, you run a loop. It is infinite. It goes around Wagga. There's no stop. There's, that's a metaphor, isn't it? During during the week, I run, uh, say, a 10k loop or an 8k loop, either along the river or over the hills. Uh, and then on weekends, I run a bit longer, say, maybe 20 to 30ks. And yeah, they are, they are similar. They're the same every day. But um, it was interesting to hear Susan speak about meditation and focus. I feel like my running is a lot noisier. Um, there are a lot of thoughts <laughs> bouncing through my head. There are bits of podcasts. There are tracks I'm listening to through um, headphones. There are surprises from animals, foxes, people. And so those interruptions, I think, are really interesting for me, but it's 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 far less pure, I think, as a form and as a mode of kind of exercise and meditation. Maybe I'm just not good at meditation. What about habit or ritual? Yeah, there is a ritual to it. And I think as a poet, it's quite an interesting ritual because... I mean, Auden's got that famous um, line, doesn't he? Poetry makes nothing happen. And I think running can be thought of in a similar way. It, it seems a little useless. You end sometimes where you began. It's a loop. And so at the end of it, you think, well, what's been achieved? My body's a bit more worn out. <laughs> um, maybe some thoughts have jostled into place. And so there's, a, there's something beautiful, I think, beautifully kind of redundant in what you achieve at the end. And so I've tried to think about that in some of my poems, some longer poems about running. I recently wrote a shorter one, which used kind of the Elizabethan sonnet rhyme scheme in the front half of the poem. And then I reversed that rhyme scheme coming out the back half of the poem as though it was a loop, very similar to the Murrumbidgee loop. And it was about the kinds of things that might bump through one's head as you're running down the Murrumbidgee here in Wagga Wagga and then turning for home.
And Susan, tell me about the location of your run, the one block you ran around 6,000 times. You must have known every inch, every shopkeeper, every brick. Well, there's always something new to be seen. Really? Yep. And if you're stuck, look at the sky because that's changing all the time. Well, indeed, there was a cyclone, wasn't there? Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely a big surprise for me. So um, I'm someone who doesn't cope with the heat very well. And I was fully set up to, in anticipation of dealing with that. I had all the herbs, all the, you know, I was set up with ice and different equipment that was going to help me with that. And I'm usually pretty good in the cold. So I, I didn't really think too much about being prepared for that. And then that was the thing that um, caused me a big problem because I got overly cold, I got wet and damp, and then I got sick. So for three days or so, um, I was walking and lost a huge chunk of this cushion I'd built up. I'd built up about a 40-mile cushion, which was, um, you know, there to save me if anything went wrong. And that just evaporated evaporated quickly. And then I was back to square one. And did you re-begin a ritual? Is that how you see running or not? Um, well, I for this race, I definitely had to stick to a program. It's like, you know, if you have a really big goal, then there's no possible way of seeing it in, in its entirety. So that when you run this race, you never think of 3,100 miles. You really just think of it as being your new job. So um, your new job is to run 100 kilometres per day. And then within that day... I split that down into four segments with three breaks. So, so long as I was focused solely on each segment, I didn't go nuts because, you know, this race is really too big for the mind. So I did have a little bit of a ritual, but in terms of that, I guess I consider these repeated practices simply as ways of dealing with the repeated demands that come to us, you know, with our body, it has cyclical needs. You know, so we have this nature that has these very finite requirements that are coming up in stages and in frequent occurrences. But then we also have this part of us that craves something bigger, something infinite. And in order to accommodate those things within our finite existence, we have to break those things down. So achieve them over time. You know, although our life is short, if we look at our life over the years, within the rituals and within the cycles, we've built something much, much larger than that. So in that sense, the race does parallel our life, you know, through slow and steady and constant, repeated practice, we've created something much larger. And Lachlan, is that what it's like for you? You break the race of life and the race that you might be running down into chewable chunks. Yeah, Susan's comment reminded me of uh, a poem I wrote a couple of years ago. It's the longest poem that I wrote. And it came off the back of those long runs that I would do. Uh, Long is a relative term compared to what Susan ran. But those long runs around Wagga Wagga on a Saturday morning. And I'd go away during the week and each day just write maybe a terset, that is three lines of this poem uh, that went on and on and on and just felt like it had to breathe and keep going. And this very long poem, um, which was just under 200 lines, I think, in the end, ended up being about running in a certain sense and about kind of freedom and about the condition of society. And it was based, I think, a little on John Donne has a a very well-known 1613 poem called Good Friday, Riding Westwards, where he's thinking about the human condition. 
And of course, I was doing that. And so the poem that I wrote was called Any Saturday 2021, something like running westwards. But I think breaking things down, I mean, that's what you do in a run. You break things down into stride, into cadence, into the next little section. But I could see that mirror in the poem that I wrote. I couldn't have written it in one go, but little by little, it accumulated and it gained its force from that, I think. But what about the idea of running without purpose? Uh, it's not as if you're doing these runs because you, you're late for work or you need to get an urgent message to someone. So how does this impact it? It's fascinating, isn't it, that running is both, there's a compulsion there that one feels like, well, once you get into the habit, you've got to do it. And you speak to these people and they're like, I haven't been for a run today or I haven't hit my kilometre. So there is a kind of restlessness, I think, built into running. Murakami speaks about this, that, you know, he makes these goals for himself uh, in running. So there's a restlessness there. But there's also, I think, a kind of contentment. I mean, wearing the deep grooves in the earth as you run the same track, that is a kind of symbol of being at home or being within a place or kind of bedding down or grounding oneself, being at home in the body. So, I, I mean, that's an interesting tension, I think. It's an interesting paradox for me, both being restless and content. Uh, it makes me think a little bit of the movie Chariots of Fire, um, in which the runner, Eric Liddell, who won't run on Sunday, he's a Christian, he says, "I run t- when I run, I feel God's pleasure. So it's running for the for the sense of running, even though he's running in the Olympics. But then uh, one of his competitors, I think it's Harold Abrams, says, he's speaking about his race, I, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify the whole of my existence. And so I think in those two quotes, there's this sense that running can be kind of self-justification. It can be the thing that, even though it's pleasurable, kind of can be consuming and uh, a huge pressure. But also we see in Eric Little, a kind of freedom, a contentment, an acceptance to say, look, this is part of something that enables or frees me to enjoy what I'm doing. So, so I'm interested in the ways that those play, play out in terms of a life of faith as well. Yeah, well, we'll explore that more. Endurance and the suffering and pleasure, paradoxically, that comes out of it. On RN, it's God Forbid, we're with Lachlan Brown and Susan Marshall. Endurance sports require you to endure, as the name suggests. Long-distance running, hiking, cycling, they all need forbearance and discipline to continue on step after step, kilometre after kilometre. But what exactly do we seek to endure with this self-inflicted burden? Is it physical pain or psychological angst, self-doubt, even boredom? Paul Bloom is Professor of Psychology at the University of Toronto, the author of The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. I've always been interested in why we sometimes like to suffer. So when I started the book, I was interested in cases where we inflict pain on ourselves in sort of a controlled way as part of a good time, as part of a source for pleasure. But as I began to write it and think about it and read more and talk to people, I realize there's a broader notion here, which is often we choose to suffer as part of a life well lived. I think 
part and parcel of what makes for a meaningful life is putting yourself in a situation that involves some difficulty and stress and the possibility of failure. In, in some sense, I'm merely reciting back you know, old wisdom from philosophy, from religion. If you tell somebody who's a Buddhist or a devout Catholic, a good life involves suffering, mm -hmm. they look at you as if, really, you're telling me this? <laughs> we've, we've known this for a while. And so I think in some way, this is common sense. It's what people understand is sort of no pain, no gain. But I think at the same time, psychologists, philosophers, neuroscientists tend to forget about this. And too many people kind of get caught up in the idea that we're hedonists, that pleasure is our only goal. All right, let's talk in more detail about the kind of pain and suffering you're talking about, starting with benign masochism. Firstly, what is it? It's a lovely term thought up by the psychologist Paul Rosen. He was talking about cases where we give ourselves controlled doses of pain in order to enhance our pleasure. And so I explore different theories as to why we do this. And there's there's all sorts of answers. One answer is contrast. Mm. You know, the brain is a difference machine. And we experience things, including pleasure, not in terms of absolutes, but often in terms of differences. So one way to enhance pleasure is to proceed it with a little bit of pain. You know, food tastes a lot better when you're really hungry. Um, just slowing down and walking feels a lot better if you're running full speed right before and you're totally out of breath. One example of this uh, I talk about in the book is visiting a Finnish sauna. People do this willingly. And, you know, if you, if you were a Martian looking at humans, you'd, you'd wonder, why are they in incredibly hot rooms that cause them great discomfort? And part of the answer is when you get out of it, in this case, when you jump into a, a beautiful lake, it feels blissful. And for the most part, there's no sh better shortcut to getting bliss than to put it in the context of preceding it with pain. With some degree of pain. I think contrast is part of the story. I think there's other things that go into benign masochism. There's a feeling of mastery and control. Sometimes it feels really good to put yourself in a bad situation, knowing that you can take it, knowing that it's under your control, knowing that you're doing well in it. Another thing going on here is sometimes painful experience could lead you to lose yourself. And that's just a kind of a weird way of putting it. But sometimes... um. What's in our heads is noisy and distracting and annoying. We're a constant voice over in our heads. We're conscious of our, our past, our future. We're worried. We're ashamed. We're thinking about how we're, we're coming off. And certain states, including painful states, can obliterate that. If you talk to a trained athlete about high-intensity exercise, they'll tell you that when they're doing it, they're often thinking of nothing else. Mm. And there's a pleasure to that, too. Well, pain pleasurably obliterates the need to worry about your past or your future. Sana Kadar speaking there with Professor Paul Bloom for RN's All in the Mind. Well, Susan Marshall, are you a benign masochist too? You choose to suffer to live a good life? No, not at all. No, I really don't see it that way. And I know that, you know, that's definitely an image Um projected around endurance athletes that they, you know, that they're into the sucking up the pain and all of that. I, I don't see it that way. I see it as, um, you know, the joy that I get from self-transcendence is really shaking off these shackles. So it's like we have this urge within ourselves to go beyond these things that are causing us the suffering. So for me, that's where the joy comes from. So for example, we know that, you know, we experience pain or whatever difficulty in a race or through running, um, my joy is not 
in those things. It's in finding a way to get through them. And with all of this feeling that we have of wishing to go beyond, that's the path we seek. We don't seek to remain in pain. That's why we have doctors. <laughs> that's why we're constantly looking around. We're seeking ways to achieve more. So that's, yeah, that's how I feel about it. You know, the joy is in finding a way through. And to me, that's a very important path is to find a way through. And Lachlan Brown, how do you see the pain of endurance running? Yeah, I think um, it, it, it's real, isn't it? <laughs> and there are those moments uh, where that pain kind of gives you an existential sort of jolt there. And does it make the pleasure better in the same way that the pain of hunger makes the meal taste good? It's probably different on different occasions and in different points of a, of a race or of a morning or of a year. Um, uh, but it does seem to point to something, and that is that there's a bodily sense in which we're in the world. And I think sometimes part of the reason that things like running or kind of subjecting ourselves to the gym have such a force and such a focus is that they, they ground us back in, in our bodies and in the world in ways that contemporary society sometimes uh, likes to draw us out of. So we're drawn into the streams of sort of social media or uh, Netflix or the white collar jobs in which lots of people work. We're sort of divorced from pain in, in certain ways in society. And so to be brought back to kind of um, that kind of grist, the sarks, the meat of the world, I think um, it, it, it has an existential charge. Not necessarily that it's always, you know, um, I feel bad and then I feel good, or, um, but that, are, that, that it does seem to gesture towards something, that, that the givenness of the world is a very important thing, that our bodily inhabitants of the world can't be just discounted or we maybe can't think ourselves out of that. We're here and bodies are important. Discomfort is important. And we're in Lent. Christians remember Jesus' time in the spiritual wilderness. Is there a connection for you as you run through the wilderness? I think the image, for example, the Christian image of the cross of Christ is an image where uh, the God of creation identifies with those who suffer or with suffering. It was like a place where something terrible happened and something wonderful happened, according to Christians. Yes, yeah. Which is kind of like endurance yeah. running to stretch a very long bow. Yeah, I think so. And I think for me, part of those kind of mental transactions that occur in in moments of pain, I can't wish away that pain. It's, it's there, particularly on very hot days in Wagga Wagga when you're trying to kind of get home. Um, but also in other parts of life, that pain is real, uh, that grief is real. And so for Christians, the hope is that the big story for us is of the God who has come and identified with that, and on the cross, born that in a way, born that suffering, born that pain. And so for transcendence, for those of us who are Christians, is about a world in which that is overcome by Jesus. And in those heavenly end of days, will that bring on a, a life free from running or filled with running? Oh, that's really fascinating. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, um, it's the letter to the Hebrews, which speaks of the Christian life. You know, I think it says something like, let us run the race with perseverance, kind of casting off sin and the things that so easily entangle. Um, so the Christian life is often, uh, I think Paul does as well, he often, it's often figured as a kind of race that, that one is running. So it does involve endurance now. At the end of time, the pictures aren't necessarily of running, but they're still kind of bodily. They're of singing. <laughs> they're of 
a joyful party. I would hope that there is running there. They'll just be, you know, my, my hope is for great running and sort of the most amazing trails. <laughs> <laughs> Susan Marshall, what about in Nirvana? Well, I, you know, I think people have this idea that um, there's a conclusion to this journey. And, you know, if we look at what, what we have, and if you see it in a spiritual term or even in a secular term, you see that our very nature is to constantly grow and change. So the idea of a conclusion, what would that look like? And what is the idea of perfection? What does that mean to you? And, you know, my personal idea of perfection, and for a lot of people's idea of it, that's something that constantly changes. And actually, in Sri Chinmoy's philosophy, he would describe how even God is transcending himself and that there is no end to this creation, what we call the end one day, you know, is really just the start of tomorrow's new journey. So definitely there is running. Wonderful. <laughs> On our end, it is, God forbid. Next, we're going to look at the habits of so many writers and thinkers covering incredibly long distances on foot. But what could explain this relationship between walking, running and thought? That's ahead. Did you know that many of the great writers of history have been habitual walkers? Thoreau, Emerson, Virginia Woolf, Wordsworth. Charles Dickens, too, loved a wee dander. He once got up at two in the morning to walk from his house in London all the way to his country retreat in Kent, 50 kilometres away. Well, Jono Lenine spent nearly 20 years walking across mountains as a guide and a forester, though it was trekking in the Himalayas after the death of his younger brother, Gareth, that led him to believe walking can transform the mind. Jono's book is Perfect Motion, How Walking Makes Us Wiser, and he's speaking with RN's Hilary Harper. When I started that walk, I still wasn't really in touch with, with my grief, with an understanding of the loss that Gareth's passing had 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 on me and um, you know it's almost like I was suffering from PTSD or something I wasn't in touch with that and during the process of the walk which was almost five months and you know 30 40 kilometers every day of just walking and walking and walking the walking became a meditation and in that meditation Gareth kept coming back to me. And so in, in Hinduism and Buddhism, there's a concept called darshan where you actually view a, a sacred object from all different types of angles and perspectives. And that was what was happening with me and Gareth on that walk. And in the process of that, I kind of, I kind of came to understand what his loss meant to me. And at the end of the walk, I just, I felt stronger but not just physically, but emotionally and psychologically. And, and I suppose that was the, the catalyst for me to investigate that link between walking and thinking and creativity. Tell us a little bit about flow states, John O'Lanine. How does walking relate to the flow state and what effect does it have on our ability to learn? 
Flow state is really important. We talk about flow all the time in sports and actually in business. What happens in flow is that your prefrontal cortex, which is the area of the brain that's really, really the area of higher cognitive functions, it's the area of the brain that makes you do things, takes the information from all over the, the mind and the body. And if you shut the prefrontal cortex down, and this is what happens when you go into a flow state, it starts to reduce its activity. You actually start to lose your sense of self. Um, and why is that? It's because we, uh, we approach life, we approach problems in a consistent way over and over and over again. Um, for example, I mean, the way you put your key in the ignition, the way you hang out the laundry, the way you drink your coffee, those are actually the millions of little decisions that define Hillary or Jono. Now, when the prefrontal cortex starts to slow down, then you start to lose that sense of self. And um, this is really important in creativity because if we want to approach a problem in a new way, we've got to get rid of Jono. We've got to get rid of Hillary. And the flow state actually initiates that. And that's why so many, so many artists, writers, thinkers, entrepreneurs, philosophers, scientists talk about having their best ideas when they've gone for a walk. Does it have to be a brisk walk though? Can it just be a gentle stroll? Is there any uh, research on that? No, it doesn't, doesn't have to be a brisk walk at all. The key is that the activity has to be something that you have a certain amount of mastery over, but can still challenge you. So you can go for a very slow walk on, on, on maybe unstable terrain, so that would increase its challenge and you would definitely reach a flow state. And in fact, you know, uh, walking meditation, which is promoted by the great Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh, I mean, that, that can definitely bring you to a flow state. And that's about as slow as you can go walking. The meditation of walking flowing into creativity. John O'Lenin with Hilary Harper. Well, Susan Marshall, do you see a connection between the, the trail and creativity? You know, I think that's something I need to work on. And um, I guess for me, that's where I see that I really would like to develop my practice of meditation. I've definitely had it and probably not in the 3100 because it was somehow for me it was so long and and it was just so up and down for me mentally but in other races I've definitely felt my mind just disappear and run and that's not something I have a control over and I don't know how to develop that control so for me that's a part of my journey of you know finding where that sweet spot is where I'm really functioning in it what would you describe it as you know, in this state, that I, it's not at my command. So if I can develop myself a little bit more, that I have this resource, <laughs> then that would definitely help me. And can you relate to that, Lachlan Brown, that kind of instinctive state where you're mastering something, yet it provides you challenge and you're not quite in command? I think so. In, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. So there are those moments, uh, aren't there, when you're, when you're running. And, and, and because you've let go of a few things, um, you're not quite focused on your cadence or stride or your body. Or ego. You're not quite focused on um, your destination, not quite focused on what's... So everything is sort of held lightly and the thoughts are sort of um, streaming through your mind. I think, I think that there's an interesting beauty to that, to that moment. But for me, it's often very <laughs> fractious and, um, and weird. You can finish a run and just think, oh, 
I was just brooding over some injustice or slight for way too long. <laughs> and um, actually, it was really unhealthy for me to have kind of kept brooding over whatever it was uh, on and on and on on the path. Um, there was one interesting moment during the Wagga Wagga Marathon. I think it was my first marathon um, in which uh, I was trying to listen to a podcast to kind of keep my mind off how difficult all the hills were getting. And for the podcast, I chose one about ISIS, which was probably not a great one to choose because it was like double the pain. Um, but in the podcast, I, I was listening to this podcast running up a hill and, and suddenly I heard some background music and I thought, why does ISIS, why does ISIS have um, bagpipes playing Amazing Grace in the background of this kind of moment? Did, the, did, did ISIS kind of involve themselves with these kinds of tunes? But of course, my mind had strung. I, I, I turned the corner and it was some person, bless his soul, uh, trying to encourage us all by playing bagpipes and amazing grace or, um, around the corner of a bend. Um, and my mind had put those two things together <laughs> in the soundtrack to the podcast. So I think heads can be very complex places <laughs> in, in, in running. And, and that's part of the fun and the joy and the, the strangeness, I think, of that for me. I guess so, because we heard about all the great riders who get their riding ideas whilst running, and, you know, your idea was to combine Amazing Grace and Isis. Um, <laughs> but do you get poetry ideas when you run, and, and then do you need to take, a, like, a, practically a pencil with you to write it down if you get the idea? I think I have, and I think, I think opening up those channels for seeing the world differently is a, is a really important part of poetry. So in, in the poetry I think about and write, uh, we often consider, well, how, how can we represent experience uh, in ways that are fresh and new, in ways that kind of can capture that complexity of what people are going through or what we're going through or that do justice to the landscapes around us. And so the lateral movement, uh, the, the jumps and leaps that people often, uh, it, it comes to them on walks. And I think that's why one of the reasons that uh, walking and running kind of go hand in hand with creative practice. But the other sense is that it is hard work. So creative practice is hard work. Now, I don't take a pencil. Uh, we all have our phones now. So there's voice memos and there's kind of at the end of a run, you might kind of write some things down. Um, but for me, I, I would hope uh, the, the most striking images stick. Uh, one morning, uh, I was running up on Pomingalana Hill here in Wagga Wagga, and I saw the light coming through, angling through the foliage and hitting a plastic water bottle, and it reminded me of Crivelli's The Annunciation with St. Emedius, which is a very famous artwork. And so that made its way into a poem later on. It wasn't going to drop out of my head, remembering the light coming in. Uh, it wasn't an annunciation of uh, St. Emedius. It was the annunciation of the plastic water bottle in the landscape that we're wrecking. Um, but for me, that became a key image. Yes. And Susan Marshall, do you get inspired by the places you run? Where do you run now that you're back from your ultramarathon in New York in Canberra? Well, I, yeah, I run all, all through the trails here. So this is, you know, this was a great place to, to come to train. Yeah, I guess I, I feel like with creativity and running, you know, there's there's a sense of silence and a sense of movement with it. There's not much to distract you and it's a very simple activity. But at the same time, you know, our whole system is geared towards moving forward. And I wonder if um, maybe that's sparking some of the creativity there. Mm. I mean, we know walking and running proven to help 
Oh, what everything. Digestion, mood, weights, joints, longevity, brain power and creativity. It's, it's like a miracle cure. Mm. I feel like it's making me creaky and old. Do you really, Lachlan? <laughs> At times, yes. And maybe that comes from having three kids as well. <laughs> maybe you're running from them. What about GPS technology? Uh, I mean, you make the point that it's not lost on you that this technology which was created to better target bombs is now used in people's apps to map their running distances and locations. Yeah, I remember um, being up on Willans Hill. I was meeting uh, Rick Storia. Um, who is who was who was trying to make the twenty four hour team for Australia, and we were going on a run together. Um, we met in the pitch dark, um, might have been five thirty a.m. or something. Um, but there was an epiphany, and the, the epiphany was that I looked up at the sky, and I just saw satellite after like a, a line of satellites going across the sky in order. Um, later on, I found out that they were Elon Musk's kind of SpaceX or something like that. Um, and so it's it, you know it's that those kinds of satellites. Um, uh, that exist, or Bezos' satellite, or whatever it is, that exist to kind of bring the internet to the world or to bring precision to the world. Um, uh, they're the kinds of things that track my run. <laughs> um, and you're exactly right, 1995, they kind of completed, the American military completed the GPS global positioning system um, and it helped them in their military application, but they turned it over um, to the world as a kind of gift and capitalists use it to target your location and sell you things. And so that's made its way into my poetry. Um, uh, so I think there is a bit of irony irony there um, that uh, the the things that allow you to map your run or to kind of accumulate miles um, are the very things that kind of are used in all kinds of other contexts to surveil um, and to target in different military ways. There was an app called Strava and um, it gave out, it kind of gave it the details of various people's runs around the world and people had used it to track American military bases in the Middle East because they saw the maps of where a whole heap of people were running um, uh, in the middle of nowhere <laughs> who may not uh, have been otherwise detectable. And so they had to change those settings and try and stop people from discovering the locations of those bases based on the maps, the heat maps of where Strava had shown all these people exercising and running. Extraordinary. Susan Marshall, do you use smartphone technology? Yeah, I use it a little bit. Um I mean, it's just one of those things, like, whatever we have, we, we're, it's all a mixture of good and bad. So we can use whatever we have for a good purpose and, you know, we can also use it to kill each other. But, um, I mean, I, I try and limit it a little bit because, you know, otherwise I get obsessed with it. Mm. We're talking about creativity in running. Writers have writer's block. I suppose in running there can be boredom. Do you ever experience monotonous boredom? No, I'm, I mean, yeah, it, it, I suppose it depends on if you're focused on a goal or not. And, you know, that's that's kind of been pretty much enough to keep my mind busy. Um, you know, I've definitely listened to podcasts and all that sort of stuff to keep me distracted. But I wouldn't say, you know, I, I'm just, I'm someone with a very busy and active mind. So for me, it's, um, it's really a case of trying to keep that under control. It's always going to have something to chat to me about. Um, but then again, that can be really de detrimental to my focus. So, um, you know, sometimes I've found it 
um, helpful to instead of, you know, say like um, Lachlan was doing brooding over an issue to actually just change my change my frame of mind by using a podcast or some um, uplifting music or something like that to help a little bit. On our end, it's God forbid when the podcast goes off and you're left with yourself, you have solitude. We'll be looking at that up next. We live in a time when it's perhaps never been more difficult to be alone, free from the noise of the modern world. Henry David Thoreau walked daily and said he never found a companion as companionable as solitude. This may explain why so many of us prefer to run and walk alone, or at most with the dog. Philosopher Brian Trainer says solitude might be countercultural in our digital world, but it's impossible to live a full life without it. On our ends, the minefield, he warns if we don't shape our inner world for ourselves, well, the outside world will do it for us. What is solitude a response to? And I've been influenced by, I think, a lot of the same thinkers you have on this topic, Thoreau and Emerson, Wolf and others. I think it's often for these figures a sense that society at large or life without solitude somehow circumscribes and diminishes experience. It's not, it's not for them, I think, that, that social experience is a bad thing, but that if all we have is the social experience, we're sort of missing a note in the symphony of our lives, so to speak. There's, there's something missing if all we're getting is the social interaction, which is what comes easiest to us, right? Human beings are by nature social animals. And it's all too easy for us to sort of only know ourselves in society. It seems to me like one of the things that solitude facilitates that's sort of necessary kind of for a full human life is that solitude, it seems to me, is very closely tied to our ability to pay attention both, well, I'd say to at least three things, to ourselves, to the world, and here I'm thinking uh, primarily of non-human nature, and, and perhaps to God. A life without solitude society ends up overwhelming all three of those other things if it's just society. Um, You can't hear your own voice, so you kind of don't have a good sense of yourself. Certainly the sort of, if I was just going to, I don't mean this to sound too pejorative, but the kind of cacophony of humanity and humans' culture has sort of drowned out the natural world in in many ways. In the experience of solitude, we've been willing to, to let go and to open ourselves up to the experience of what the world has to show us or what we discover about ourselves. You know, insofar as we're too structured or purposeful in our solitude, we, then we never really get away from ourselves. We, may, we may maybe never get away from what society was telling us society's supposed to, I'm sorry, solitude is supposed to be about. Part of, part of solitude, as you said, has got to be this aspect of letting go if we went back to our friend Thoreau, you know, a big part of his daily practice were these walks of four or five or six hours that he referred to as sauntering. Mm. And um, he described sauntering 
as a as a process of letting go, where he let nature direct him where he was. So he he would leave his house to go for one of these long walks without any real particular idea about where he was going to go or what he was going to do. And he'd sort of let discovery lead him along for four or five hours each day. Um, again, that's perhaps more than, than most people uh, maybe have a stomach for, and there are going to be temperamental differences. But I, I think there's something to leaving yourself op- open to surprise mm. and and what's revealed to you. And that if we went if we went into solitude with a very kind of structured plan about what's going to happen each hour e- each day, we'd lose a lot of the good that's there. Professor Brian Trainer on RN's The Minefield, or Lachlan Brown. He was reporting that Thoreau walked five hours a day without knowing where he was going. That uh, sounds like the exact opposite of our planned and organised modern lives. It does, doesn't it? That, um, um, but that was part of a very well-regimented kind of uh, form of existence, I think. So there's, there's bigger frames in place for him to have those, <laughs> those ramblings. And I think um, there is a kind of... There is another a, another frame in which he's really controlling, even though he's he's even though he's open to various things, he's he, he's in control of kind of his daily schedule and he's he's regimenting himself in other ways, I think. Um, and so, yeah, I, I find him an interesting case. Hmm. And Susan Marshall, Brian was saying that if we don't take control of our inner worlds, if we don't know what's going on inside of us, then we can only really understand ourselves through our relationship with society. We just become a echo chamber for our culture. Yep. That I mean that's that's definitely a part of who we are as our interaction with, you know, the others around us because we have our you know, ourself in 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 its entirety and we also have, you know, a very important part of our life which is our interaction with others. And often I think but depending on the situations that we're in the thoughts and the culture of others can can become very influential. Um, but it's like if we move through different situations, different thoughts that other situations that others have experienced have created, then that gives us a different reflection on our own nature. So it's like we can see different parts of ourselves through our interactions with others and they allow us to explore different parts of our own selves. So um, I wouldn't say that necessarily withdrawal or solitude is the only solution to this, but it would definitely be a healthy part of finding out more about ourselves and, and then being able to have a different relationship with the world. So you say it's healthy, not selfish, this this need to be alone, to have solitude, in this case, the solitude of the long run or the long walk. You know, we remember the old Christian hermits who had the long stay in the cave. I would say it depends on your requirements and on how you feel about others. I mean, I, I don't think solitude in large doses is good for anybody. Um, I actually, you know, I feel feel like you lose yourself a little bit if you spend too much time alone. And I mean, the interesting thing about the 3100 is that it's something that you have to do alone, but you also have to do it with others. Um, you know, there's, we kind of joke a little bit, it takes a village to run 3100 miles. So even though it's an individual achievement and you're running alone, you're constantly interacting with people. 
Yeah, mm. there's two sides to it. And Lachlan, do you agree? Can you find too much of yourself? Well, I've just been thinking through, um, so I, wa- I run here in Wagga Wagga in, on Wiradjuri country, um, and the Wiradjuri people have uh, set up Murrumbidgee wetlands to be a beautiful space to run through. Um, and I think it would be very, for some of them, it, there is a kind of, this notion of solitude is an important one, but to say that kind of it, it's kind of an absolute solitude running through that space uh, would, would seem a bit strange. Um, and sometimes, I know it's a bit ironic, but sometimes I get my phone out uh, and record the voices of all the birds in the wetlands um, in, in, you know, at 6.30 on a Saturday morning. Um, and there is a, a symphony, there's a cacophony of sounds. Uh, to say that that was solitude um, would be really strange, I think, to the traditional owners of the land because... Um, uh, there's so much going on. So from one perspective, yes, I'm on my own. Um, there's no other human presence there. Um, but from another perspective, um, the creation is speaking. <laughs> um, it's declaring something. The birds are kind of going nuts. Um, and um, and so um, I, while I think solitude is a is a huge part of kind of the rhythms of our life, I mean... I'm thinking that Jesus, what does he say? Says, is it Luke's gospel? He often withdrew to lonely places to be alone, something like that. Well, I was thinking uh, loneliness is a pain. Solitude might be a peace. Yeah, it m- they may be two views of the one of the one moment or the one of the one thing. Um, and I think for some, I mean, running is not a pure thing. It's not. It's not the solution to every problem. So sometimes running is a loneliness that one can choose. <laughs> um, uh, that that we are running sometimes from something, um, uh, away from people or away from situations. Um, it, it could it can be um, uh, symptomatic of issues and problems. Addiction to exercise is a well-documented compulsion. Mm, yes, very much so. Well, there'll only be one winner of the God Forbid quiz, which, end, which is coming up next, Susan and Lachlan, so that'll be a lonely place on the dais, but, you know, someone has to take it out. We'll do the quiz now. God forbid. Wits End! Yes, it's a Wits End, the God forbid quiz. Uh, the third in our three-part series on daily rituals. Today, running, hiking, riding. And we begin with the buzzers, as always. Now, Lachlan Brown, every Saturday you run the 40-kilometre Wiradjuri Trail uh, and you use this essential product each time. Test your buzzer. Anti-chafing nipple tape? Is that right? Anti-chafing nipple tape? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> and Susan Marshall, you ran the 5,000-kilometre self-transcendence race in New York. That still blows my mind. Uh, prompting this question, test your buzzer. Why am I here? I bet you asked yourself that <laughs> a few times <laughs> as you went round the same block. Now, the first question. When the Persian army landed at Marathon in 490 BCE, the ancient Greeks chose their very best runner, Phidipides, to send word of the invasion. He ran all the way from Athens to Sparta. How long was the journey, not as the crow flies, but the journey he took? Is it 150 kilometres, 250 or 350 kilometres? Why am I here? 250. 250, says Mm -hmm. uh, Susan Marshall. You're right. That's about six marathons. And he did it in two days, according to the ancient scribes. Could you run six marathons in two days? No. 
No. Oh, well. Now let's go to the next question. What's Australia's longest established dedicated walking trail? It's in South Australia. Anti-chafing nipple tape? Is it the Birdsville track? The Hayson Trail, 1,200 kilometres, winding along the beaches and sea cliffs of the southeast, passing over the Fleurio Peninsula and the Mount Lofty Ranges. Beautiful. Um, Next question. What's the longest trail in the world? Why am I here? Appalachian? Um, It is North America, the Great Trail or the Trans-Canada Trail, a network of um, trails stretching 24,000 kilometres from the Atlantic to the Pacific and the Arctic Oceans. Now, Descartes, you may remember, said, I think, therefore I am. Next question is, who said I run, therefore I am? Anti-chafing nipple tape? Oh, is it Murakami? Yes, the Japanese author, Haruki Murakami. He's a daily runner himself and his 2007 memoir, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. Now, next question. Who unexpectedly won the inaugural Sydney to Melbourne Ultramarathon in 1983? Anyone who was alive at the time remembers it vividly. A wonderful old man in gumboots. I was two years old. Well, I was 12. Was it wasn't I... Cliff Young, was it? Yes! You watched far too much television as a two-year-old. As a two-year-old. <laughs> Cliff Young, 61 years of age. He was a potato farmer who famously used to run, as I say, in his gumboots. Well, Lachlan Brown, Susan Marshall, we've got to the end of God Forbid, but thank you both so much for, for making it what it was, the Times Runaway. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, and thank you, Lachlan, as well. Yes, thanks so much, everyone. Yeah, thank you, Lachlan. And with that, we have reached the end of God Forbid. Lachlan Brown, a runner and poet and lecturer in English at Charles Sturt University in Wagga Wagga. Catch him on the Wiradjuri Trail. Susan Marshall running around Canberra, the first woman across the line in last year's 50-day, 5,000-kilometre self-transcendence race in New York. So it's, I just act unfathomable what you've done. It's extraordinary, yeah. Oh, congratulations. I mean, no, it's thank, like... you, no, thank, thank you. <laughs> and with that, we have reached the end of God Forbid. You can follow and share the podcast on the ABC Listen app, email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. This has been God Forbid. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.